message and I'll get back to you. Hey, Craig, I've got a curiosity of Earthus that'll blow your doors off, man. But uh, I'm going to have to take a couple hundred out of the patron fund for twine and post-it notes. Also, my den wall is pretty occupied. You mind if I send you the twine and post-its for my last theory and you can keep it on your garage door for a while? is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you listener patrons for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book. Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolf story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hey, James. Hey, Craig. I'm saying hello first because <laughs> we're doing something a little different today. So with our whole big break kind of that we had um we ended up having a lot more comments about older shows and we thought that instead of making like an hour and a half of comments at the beginning of one episode we would collect all that stuff that was about older issues or more general issues and do a separate comment show so that's what we're gonna do here instead of making the last chapter have hours upon hours of power and hours of of comment So we are going to talk about a lot of things that are either from older chapters, some even from later chapters, and yeah, a whole range of just different issues this time. So this is our grab bag episode. Right. And we're going to, you know, the summary for Claw is coming up. So this lets us clear the board, make sure we get everybody's uh, input in before we, you know, talk about what we've come away from, from this volume as well. Absolutely. So, all right, well, then do you want to get started here? Yep, let's jump right in. Okay. William Ansley has a correction. William is a uh, former Earthlister from way back, which is, is pretty cool. Old timer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, let's see, he's also a, a journeyman patron on that. Thanks, William. Let's see, uh, William corrects us, that is to say me on the purple roses. He says, I'm spelling this out despite the fact that you corrected this error because I don't think you fully corrected it. As part (laughs) of your muddle, you said, or at least seemed to me to be saying that Severian regarded thoughts of his own death, the death of someone who had been kind to him or the death of the sun, which he associated with the Nenophars, as positive images. And I don't think that is the case. Since he hated and feared the Nenophars, for causing or nearly causing his death, he must have hated and feared dying as well. Hmm. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, it could be. It. Uh, I, I feel like the sort of connections of associations there get a little hard to tell mm-hmm. sometimes. But I mean, what I think what he what he says makes sense. Is it it could go that way, but I, I feel like that's one that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. You can't look at the actual phrasing of things and and what makes more sense. But I mean, I I think I can see his point. I'm not sure that I'm totally convinced, but I see where he gets that. Yeah, as with uh, all of Wolf's uh, protagonists, he's he could be well conflicted. So yeah. I feel like I had uh, something more concrete to say about that, but it went away. Yeah. If it comes back, it comes back. <laughs> and, and secondly, uh, William corrects me, justifiably, uh, what I had always considered to be the body itself that was sitting in the coffin, uh, he asserts is a bronze sculpture or bas relief, as he would have appeared in real life. Quote, lying with his eyes closed as if in sleep. I... I I think uh, this is demonstrated, uh, Craig, in the upcoming episode on yep. in the last chapter. I was going to say we right. dealt with that again directly. Yeah, we have done that in the past, but the, but people listening here have probably not. 
Yeah. But yeah, when he sees uh, Apa Punchao in real life, yeah, it's, I think, I, I think I have uh, been uh, roundly convinced. I, I, I had already become convinced, but I think this was, uh, this, this was the little cherry on the top. Uh, let's see. We also got a letter from Bill Maddox. He says, Greetings. I've been listening to the podcast chronologically for the last month or so, and most recently finished episode 124, The Flower of Dissolution. Since I'm clearly years behind, I've been reluctant to join the conversation. But you keep saying to leave comments anyway, because you're happy to go all the way back to chapter one. So I finally decided to jump in. I joined the Facebook group and and started to type this up for a post there, but I realized that this is just way too long for a Facebook post and decided to make an email instead. But I'll start commenting on Facebook when I have less to say. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I mean, there's some benefit to doing it on Facebook, even if it's long, and that's which is perfectly all right. That Facebook a lot lets you do that. It's not Twitter, you know. You get loads of people responding. Yeah, right in there. yeah we'll have to summarize this to some extent, right? So he says, uh, first, I want to join the chorus of those praising the Rereading Wolf podcast. This is a great format. I love the relationship between ace conspiracy theorist James and wise skeptic Craig. Wise. <laughs> wise skeptic. <laughs> <laughs> the stab in the back, Bill. Uh, he says, you compliment each other well as co-hosts. Personally, I lean toward Craig's end of the spectrum. Yeah, they all do. And then, yeah. But, yeah. We're, we're, the, we're the boring vanilla mainstream <laughs> reader. That's I, I'm the true master villain here. I will, you'll all become my acolytes at some point. <laughs> uh, so he says, my favorite moments as a listener are when I make a comment or objection to myself while listening, and then Craig says what I was thinking or something very similar. It makes me feel smart. So thank you, Craig. I also love the fake sponsors and the kitschy sound bites. Yeah, I love those too. The uh, combination of deep conversation, wild speculation, intense research, shenanigans, and good-natured humor Make it clear that you both love Gene Wolfe's works. That's true. But also don't take the books or yourselves too seriously to have fun with it. Well done. One might say that spending this much time on one book doesn't really count as not taking it seriously, but I understand what you mean. <laughs> yeah, but having done this, you can't afford to take yourself too seriously either. He says, from my listening so far, there are three points I would like to discuss. The first is uh, Valeria. Y'all recall, uh, Severian meets Valeria, they talk for a bit, and they have tea or something, and they have a conversation, which we don't get recorded. And then next thing we know, so Severian's outside the door, right? He says, uh, you mentioned the sudden jump in narrative between Severian's meeting with Valeria and his return to the Madachin. You discussed the possibility that this could indicate that there may have been something shameful about what happened during the meeting. Did we say that, Craig? Maybe we did. We might have suggested it, I think. Yeah, I sure. don't think that's I mean, where we came out, but it's possible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he says, he says, while I can see the reason for this inference, I've never read the text that way and had not considered the possibility until listening. As Craig pointed out in the episode, Severian is hard to shame. Yeah, that's a point we bring up a lot when people suggest that maybe he's, he's lying or trying to fluff himself up, right? Yeah. Also, he says, when... Severian finally mentions Valeria and ultimately returns to her later in the books. I don't recall there being anything else in the text to indicate something shameful happened. Well, you know, it's just that he doesn't mention it. It's, it is odd, right? Especially yeah. for a guy who, who go, just goes on and on and on about every conversation and, and thought. Mm -hmm. It's like he can't, he can't edit, right? But he yep. suddenly, for that, he does. He says, in my reading, I have always assumed that Severian is keeping his relationship with Valeria private because of her importance to him and her relative lack of importance to the story. Then Bill brings up the, the movie Saving Private Ryan, where Ryan and Captain Miller talk privately about their families back home. And Ryan shares memories of his brothers with Miller. And Miller, in turn, mentions uh, something about his wife and her rose bushes. And then when Ryan pushes him to talk about it, Miller pauses and says, no, that one I saved just for me. And I did think of a more recent one after that. It's when old Captain America comes back to give the shield to Sam at the end oh. of Endgame. And he's like, you want to tell me about the, what's her name? He's like, nope, uh, nope, don't think I will. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. 
And he, he points out Valeria is the one that Severian settled down with, the, you know, considering all the other women he's been with, the one he lived a life with. And of course, he as soon as he goes off to Yesed, he, you know, I guess he, he take, decides he gets a pass. He says, uh, I think Severian chooses not to share details of his most important relationship with the strangers in space time who will eventually read his book. That's very reasonable, actually. I mean, if you're going to find up a, a, a motive for why Severian doesn't share stuff, that's a that's a pretty good one. He just didn't want to. But, yeah, so um, the one thing I thought about that, too, was just that that in like with saving private ryan that's sort of a character building moment where it it works and it sort of reminds you there are people with these whole other lives but i don't there's so much more that valeria is actually involved in the story that especially once you get to earth that that relationship seems really important to a lot of the stuff that's going on whereas whatever's going on in private ryan's home you know it's more about like ah oh, that's a nice soft moment for these characters to remind you that they're real and have bigger other mm -hmm. lives and stuff like that but valeria is part of the story you know it's not like she's you know saving private ryan's story happens in the war the home stuff is not part of it so that 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 was why like i i know the point but it yeah when you're talking about telling your story about how you came to the throne and laying out all these things that were important to it it's you know for the like right the king to marry the queen like that's not just a personal decision that's not private that's yeah yeah the thing is he does say at one point you know about valeria i've said too much um <laughs> <laughs> and i don't know that doesn't sound like he's just keeping it for himself it sounds like I don't know. Maybe, like maybe it's not there's a state secret, but secret, there's something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There is, I, there is, I think, some kind of a secret about her. I don't know necessarily what it is, but I got to admit, uh, Craig, and this is going to come up in the summary, I've, my ideas about Valeria are, are, are growing. It's really, well, that's um, good. But no, I think, I feel like the way that you pointed out a long time ago, that, that the references to her get more and more glowing as time goes mm -hmm. on. Like, I feel like that's intentional, like to yeah. have like said very little about her. And then as time goes on to be like that most momentous experience and you're like, <laughs> wait, what? So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the, it's possible that in shadow, he refers to her at one point as the one I love the most, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe. Yeah, it might be that might not be the one what he's talking about. But 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 then next is the forgotten girl of the atrium. And mm -hmm. it just gets more elaborate yeah. from that point on. It's very interesting. Let's see. On the first Severian, he uh, he says, I've read Book of the New Sun twice. However, on listening to the episode about first Severian, I came up with a theory that I'm excited about. And it's basically the theory that the first Severian failed. And I think that that's kind of in line with kind of where you wanted to go. I, uh, Mantis and I uh, rejected that. He says, uh, he proposes, try again. He proposes that, you know, Severian became a walker by stealing technology or magic from Yesid in order to go rogue. Uh, that's which is sort of uh, answers my question of, well, if he doesn't take the, the, uh, the new son, then how does he become a walker in time? Yeah. He's, uh, so he's got himself a, a, an extra method. He's got, he's got one of their time vehicles. So the other thing, and he has something else. He has another answer to one of my uh, discrepancies, my, my issues with this theory, that everyone is paying attention to Severian. Why are they so sure that our Severian will pass the test if the first one didn't, right? And he says, well, he thinks that maybe they're so taken back and impressed by this new creative approach that some of them decide to observe him rather than stop him. And in the end, the first Severian's theft is the new event that finally breaks the repetitive cycle of failure. Um, he does. He has some reasons, though, for to, to support his story. He says, as Craig is often saying about other theories, it adds depth to the story instead of only making it more confusing and complicated. He also says that it fits with Severian's character. In the first chapter, our Severian immediately identifies with Vodalus. He he likes you know outlaws, and then secondly, it matches the Wolfian theme of heroes who think outside the box. They set aside their original beliefs when confronted with contradiction and break rules where necessary. 
Uh, he offers uh, Silk in Book of the Long Sun as an example, and also Abel in The Wizard Knight. As he argues, Abel repeatedly defies customs of chivalry in order to do the truly chivalrous deeds that appropriately honor the higher circles of reality. I think Wolf's stories consistently exhibit a belief that the law should serve man instead of the man serving the law. That's a very Christian idea, too. Yeah. So what do you think? So, yeah, I mean, it's all speculative about the backstory, and I still don't know what actual textual piece about First Severian beyond what we have in the last bit of Citadel we could use to sort of directly point to what that story is. So I feel like anytime we're doing it, we're we're building on what makes more sense to us. And yeah, I tend more to the idea that, you know, if you got cycles, it seems like the cycles should be building towards something or, you know, that just, just seemed, I don't know, but that's gut feeling. Like I don't have any real specific something in the books to point to necessarily for that for First Severian. Uh, I do think it works more as a story because it kind of gives first Severian, a more clear point to what he's doing. He's like, yeah, I didn't know how to be good then, but I feel better now how to lead myself on. And it sort of has a much better sense of like how to develop a self over time and, a, a you know, what it's like to, you know, improve your soul from, you know, mm -hmm. if the afterlife is, if you can still purify your soul in the afterlife, then maybe you can purify your soul between versions. I mean, <laughs> like we talked about Christmas in right about the different lives right. where people have to go through. It was felt like it was kind of that story too, but yeah. And, but as far as actual textual stuff that would prove that, I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, once again, yeah. When it ultimately for the story, and I often say, I'll probably bring up again very soon. I just think that if you're going to figure out, this story to the sense that it can be figured out you have to figure it out inductively and i think that they're written that way and mm -hmm. so if it feels right no one's never going to uh you know prove anything to anyone about these books there's not never going to be any canon about yeah probably them. not so maybe <laughs> no. I, I so i i'll have to give up on everyone just being right along with me so <laughs> um let's see uh he also has an idea about Father Aniri's eight-sided mirror room. He says, uh, you were discussing uh, Father Aniri's mirrors and described an eight-sided chamber and the indefinable color, and I was immediately struck by the parallels with Terry Pratchett's Discworld. The very first Discworld book, uh, Color of Magic, describes the eighth color, octarine, and the magical color beyond purple, not unusually perceivable to mortal eye. When things turn octarine, chaos ensues. Also, the number eight appears everywhere in this world magic. Eight sons eight, uh, become wizards, and eight sons of wizards will be extremely powerful and dangerous wizards. He, uh, and then he, of course, points out that uh, The Color of Magic was published in 1983, so you know it couldn't really have influenced Wolf as, as far as the book of New Sun, but it could have gone the other way, which... Yeah. Seems reasonable. I do think going through and looking for like Wolf and Pratchett connections would be really interesting through a lot of stuff. Even even with that that time issue there about like you know when first book came out and all that. But um, partly, I think it'd be interesting just because they have such. I at least the way I read them, they have very very different worldviews, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I think in the end, Pratchett and Wolf would probably not see eye to eye about a whole lot of things if nothing else you know gaiman's a good go-between right mm -hmm. i mean gaiman was friends with both wrote a book with with well, obviously good omens with pratchett but i mean wrote with uh wrote with wolf too but yeah. um but yeah so i think that'd be really cool I, the i don't myself find much about that in uh father Anire, but um but if they're who knows they're Certainly in general, though, the wolf connection with Pratchett, that's something I don't think I've seen a lot of people talk about. So that would be cool. So um, let's see. Also, uh, Grant Canterbury, he has a few thoughts on Father Aniri's mirrors. He says, why eight? To, he says, to set up opposing mirrors, one could have any even number. Two, four, six, eight. Two seems the simplest, but, you know, what is the point of eight? Why eight? Um... Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah. <laughs> honestly, no, truly, I don't. I mean, I think it's it, it's a good complicated number. It, I mean, we could 
pull up numerology text, right, and figure out like, oh, what is the traditional meaning of eight, and what is its possible tarot meaning? There could be all that. Um, I get the feeling that it's just it's a big enough number to be complicated. You know, that's yeah. sort of my good feeling about it is it's complicated. It's more like I always feel somebody talked once about like how five, four and five are usually the biggest numbers people can picture just as numbers and like immediately mm. see them as that number. When you get beyond that, like six people will normally picture as three and three or, you know, seven, Like, but it's hard to just immediately know seven but still it's a prime not a prime number but still it's it's like a a small enough number that it can seem i don't know integral somehow <laughs> i don't know but but it's it's a good number to make something not seem still seem kind of like occult but also right. important but i mean that's more just like the sort of aesthetic of it as far as like is there an actual real meaning for eight i don't know the engineer could have figured something out about how it creates a certain number of I don't know how the lines cross when they're reflected and all kinds of stuff, but I, I don't, I don't know. I yeah, would you have know, to six, let true engineers and occult people say a whole lot more. <laughs> well, you know, six, six mirrors, that would be like a, a hexagon, like a mm -hmm. honeycomb. I, a series of, uh, you know, hexagons is, uh, is the best use of space. Right. Mm -hmm. So I could see for that. I don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe six was too few. I don't know. Yep, it, sure. Is there a symbolic reason? I don't know. He also wonders if this kind of geometry affects the gardens too, so that the jungle garden is a normal botanic garden around the edges near the entrance, but toward the center of the space where the multiple specula are interacting there, there's a great deal of time-space weirdness. In the Garden of Sleep, really no description of when they entered or exited. For sand, however, the thorn butch with... The thorn bush, which is the primary uncanny element, is right by the entrance, which seems to break the pattern. But perhaps the sand garden is four-sided? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's... I'm not sure... It, it, I can't imagine it working that way. But if And once again, like if I was going to imagine the sides of the botanic garden, I would presume that it would be a series of six sided uh hexagons because they would interlace perfectly around the edges but so i don't really know how they go together with uh with the eight i don't know maybe this is the other thing about the room with father aniri's mirrors there's no furniture except many huge vases too tall to see into one wonders what's inside of them <laughs> yep no i do too but i also think it gives that like feeling of some kind of weird classical temple feel uh, to it like there's yeah. just something yeah that that makes it feel familiar yet ancient yet yeah yeah i'm sure if there it was uh you know there was a director setting up this room he would probably have a very minimalist uh, asian kind of a kind of a feel to yeah could yeah, be them. yeah um yeah. grant um yeah grant suggests that maybe he he plops the the fish in from his uh, mirrors when they're caught <laughs> <laughs> i have a different idea about what happens to those uh, those fish but there you go um, hey, hey, let's talk about uh, some Apple podcast reviews. Mm -hmm. Those are pretty cool. It's been a while, I think, since yeah. we've actually read about any. I think we've gotten a few over the last year, but I don't think we've mentioned all of them. Not so in a while. If we, if we have forgotten one, we apologize. Yeah. He's, uh, let's see, one from Ookla13. Uh, I hope we haven't talked about Ookla13 in the past. I don't know that we have. Uh, he says, um, I finally got around to starting this show last week, and I'm really enjoying it so far. Just got past Agalus's execution episode. I have been reading this story for over 20 years now and just started another reading, probably at least the 11th time. And I have never looked at any of the theories or anything from the other fans on the internet and only looked at the story for my understanding of what is happening. Now, reading with other people's ideas is certainly eye-opening and interesting. Keep it up. Oh, good. I'm glad you didn't say like, ah, oh, that I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> now I see why insane. I didn't listen to them before. <laughs> we did not read the same book. <laughs> so let's see. Also, we got one from Pathema Mike. This is a deep dive into a deeper world. Have you ever needed an escape from your escape or maybe a new way to view the vast world that you plunge into when you turn the yellow pages to propel you through the corridors of time. These guys provide just that. 
The Book of the New Sun is my favorite series, and I would consider Wolf my favorite author. So it's fun to hear theories and explanations from those who are much better read than myself. I didn't read much until a particular incident in college forced me to read the Millennium Trilogy. Have you read that, Craig? No, is uh... yeah okay. So yes, it's, it's the uh, the the Stieg Larsson series, the, the girl with the dragon tattoo, I guess, and all that. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I haven't read that one. Hope it was good. Uh, he says, if you're a fan of Wolf and have read the Book of the New Sun at least once, I highly recommend this podcast. It's funny, engaging, and all around a good time. <laughs> thank you thank you pat the mic i like that oh five stars five stars five stars and then let's go ahead and finish this up ostily 1984 ostily 1984 i'm trying to wonder what that's connected built together from <laughs> well he ostily says i say he i don't know this he says just finished the series two weeks ago and found you guys now i'm on episode two seven this is so wonderful I never knew how much I was missing. Thanks. You know, I, I never knew how much I was missing either. So <laughs> this is a lot of fun for me. Okay, let's get back to it. Oh, 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 okay. So in the period we are opening, we have Mantis has had a lot of different ideas. He sent us emails. Um, sometimes he, he talks on, he talks a lot on Reddit. If you want to see, if you want to want to interact with the Mantis, then uh, you can hang out at the Gene Wolf subreddit and you'll, CME's serious fiction. In an email, he says, Hey there, wild wolfmen. Having heard your Christmas Inn episode, which spurred me to reread The Tree is My Hat, I subsequently went full memorare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he says, Yeah, the, the love interest getting cut in half again, as in uh, The Tree. And he says that uh, in Memorare, that's where, you know, the movie references really start to surface, He's, uh, which is true. I mean, it's it's almost, it's supposed to be a movie, right? Mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah. He says, I mean, that opening is just like Indiana Jones in space, right? I think that is intentional too. And then the complication of the old ex and her new lover straight out of Casablanca. Of course, the ending is mother of all slingshots. It's also firmly anti-Casablanca. <laughs> so he says, within this frame, Christmas Inn looks like a mutation of Holiday Inn, the original source of the tune White Christmas, and an inspiration for a hotel chain in real life. You know, I didn't even think about that until he mentioned it, that Christmas Inn and Holiday Inn, that... Yeah. That I mean, I see the general right? connection. I'm trying to think. I mean, why else make, why make it a, an inn, really? It could be. It could yeah. be, it could well be his thing of like, I, as he always says, if I'm stuck for an idea, I just go to the bookshelf and pick something and then change it. <laughs> change <aspects laughs> of it. So anyway, so man just wants to know. So if, uh, if Memorare is Indiana Jones and Casablanca and uh, Christmas Inn is Holiday Inn, then what would uh, the tree is my hat be? South Pacific, of course, but here we contrast the happy musical movie with the polar opposite source text. Wolf bringing it back to the source text, Infernal. <laughs> and, oh, he has an interesting uh, point that, uh, you know, Wolf in his introduction mentions that his daughter and her husband have a little inn uh, in Arkansas. And he, uh, he notes that uh, it appears that his daughter and husband sold the place in 2021 after hmm. about a dozen years. Also, uh, regarding our Christmas episode, he says, Dickens wrote a Christmas novella, quote, The Haunted Man and the Ghost's Bargain, which begins with the ghost giving the man the option to forget all his grief, rather like the offer at the end of the wolf story. I, I really like that. That was really interesting. And now it made me want to go off and read it. I have, I have uh, Dickens' ghost stories uh, sitting on my shelf there. And also, he points out that Dick, the Dickens story has an unnamed child going along in a mysterious way, uh, plus a family shop, which has had various failures in the past. He says, I haven't read it, but uh, yeah, I think that does sound hopeful. I'm going to check that one out, too. We should try it. Maybe if, if I like it, we'll try it. I know I've read it, but it's been a while. Oh, speaking of which, there's something that came up recently with Mantis. There, someone had, uh, had, a, had asked about... Uh, the fifth head of Cerberus. In the fifth head of Cerberus, there's an iron statue of Cerberus, and uh, they read from it, and it says, "And thence the dog with fourfold head brought to these realms of light." So he was asking where that quote was from, and Mantis actually had the answer, 
which is, it's from Euripides' uh, Heracles play. And I thought this was really interesting because really this, there, there are two close quotes to that. One is in the uh, introduction to the play, which initially made me think, well, this must be where he got it from. It doesn't closely fit either of them, I think. But the uh, Manda suggested, no, no, it's from later in the play, at line 611, where Heracles himself says something that's very close to this. Uh, like I said, it, it seems like maybe it's a combination between the two. But what's really interesting here for me, well, I say there are a couple things interesting for me. Uh, one is, you know, with the fourfold heads, it seems to me likely that the uh, that Maitre's father uh, put up the, the statue and then Maitre changed the, the inscription afterwards uh, for, uh, for obvious reasons. But in the play, uh, introduction to the play, Euripides, um, Cerberus is said not to have three heads. Later in the play, it says three, three heads. But here it's, but in the introduction, it says threefold bodies, hmm. which I thought was really, really, really interesting. And then it made me think, oh, so this kind of makes, uh, makes a lot more sense. He, it's unclear whether Cerberus has three heads or three bodies, but Triskely has three legs. And Severian literally drags Triskely out of the underworld, like Hercules does with Cerberus, and then brings him back to the underworld when he takes him into the tunnels. Hmm. And uh, there's also, I mean, I, I think it's been pointed before that uh, Severian flooding the the Vitula in Thrax is kind of like uh, Hercules cleaning the Aegean stables by flooding them. But I, I kind of went through the other labors of Hercules thinking, well, maybe there's a you know, a, a little essay or write-up I could do on this for the for Severian's her, uh, labors of Hercules, but I really can't put any uh, connection to the other labors. So if anyone has any ideas, that's a, that's, there's a good idea. That would be really interesting to me. Severian uh, doing the labors of Hercules. Uh, also on Reddit, uh, Aniramancer says, gentlemen, congratulations on this most worthy effort of examining eschatology in Genesis. You did the thing. You made the journey. <laughs> we, we made it through, yes. <laughs> That's right, with many scars, true. So he says, uh, congratulations and thanks all around to Craig, James, and Mark Aramini for making sincere efforts to eliminate to illuminate where possible. You are brave literary symbolic decoders, and we, your audience of fellow readers and listeners, are all alike simply gobsmacked by our dear author's incredible mastery in conjuring this incredibly dense forest of symbols. And it only took us 12 hours. That's right. It was, it's <laughs> easily done. Easily done. For the introduction to this play, the angel Gabriel announces that this is the night of the last day and that tomorrow the new sun will rise. Yet tonight, tonight, no one knows. He says, perhaps Gabriel is implying that tonight is the last chance for revels, mischief, assassinations, and possibly revelations. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Could be. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if, if it's the last time you're going to you know, not know the future, then yeah, it's, it's the last time to get some hints and try and work towards it, change yourself, anything like that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he, so he, he notes that in the Tempest act one, scene two, Miranda says to Caliban, I pitied thee, took pains to make thee speak, taught thee each hour, one thing or another. And Caliban says, you taught me language and my prophet on it is I know how to curse. The red plague yep. rid you for learning me your language. Very, especially very, very famous part lately for looking at Shakespeare and colonialism and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So, yeah. Super famous line yep. and cool. And in chapter 24 of The Claw of Conciliar, we find Nod crying out in a similar sentiment, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, yeah. He says, says, what good is this gift of speech except that I can curse myself? Yeah. Good mother yeah. of all these beasts, take it from me. Oh, that's pretty, yeah, that's a pretty good, good Yeah, girl. that's got to be, yeah, I feel bad for, for having missed that, but that's got to be right. That's got to be a Caliban. Yeah. Mm, cool. Very cool. Uh, I wonder, cool. I wonder if it goes deeper than that. That's all. That's what, what I always think when, when Wolf pulls a little rare, quote, well, there's a parallel there, but is there, is there more to it? That's really, ah, reread the, 
Tempest. Mark that down. Okay. Uh, He says, uh, there are several instances where Wolf takes inspiration from the Bard and presents low humor to amuse the groundlings and presents brain-teasing fares for the erudite among the crowd. For low and ribald humor, we can look to the lustful remarks of the Atark and his soldiers toward Jahi and her witty replies. And for paradoxes and conundrums to amuse the learned, we can turn to phrases such as uttered by Meshia. She says, not only your universal mind, but many lesser powers wear our humanity like a cloak when they will, sometimes only as concerns two or three of us. We who are worn are seldom aware that seeming ourselves to ourselves, we are yet demiurge, paraclete, or fiend to one another. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yep. He says, yep. this appears to me to be a reference which can encompass several players, including the Herodules in the mm-hmm. audience, Dr. Talos, Baldanders, Jalinta, Dorcas, and Severian. If the Demiurge is a creator, destroyer, the Paracleta, helper or advocate, and the fiend, an adversary, then the company of players and Herodules have played or will play one or more of those roles in mm-hmm. turn. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I like that a lot. And I think that's definitely intentional i mean that fits very well with a lot of the well with symbols make us and with um the whole idea that history replays stories and myths and things like that even when they're unintentional or un, un unknowing so unconscious of doing it too so yeah absolutely absolutely oh and i, I just realized this as i was editing this whole line from Jahi about inhuman beings wearing humanity as a cloak connects her, her directly to Marin. Let's see, also on Reddit, Ritualza. <laughs> that's, a, that's a mouthful. He says, uh, whilst I eagerly await the next episode, I thought I might ask if anyone has noticed any parallels between the Harry Potter story of the Deathly Hallows and the Book of the New Sun. Well, first of all, Ritualza. Uh, nice accent. <laughs> yeah, he says, in particular, the items that shape Severian are a sword, a cloak, and a claw. Uh, and in uh, the three items that death gives the brothers, wand of power, cloak of invisibility, and stone of resurrection. Mm. That's it. Not, not, not bad. Not bad. It's hard for me to imagine uh, J.K. Rowling, um, you know, riffing off of the Book of the New Sun, but... Yeah. These are all archetypes, so it actually makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Listener uh, Kyle piped in on email to give us some encouragement and tell us that he found us from a tabletop role playing game podcast called Between Two Cairns. And he couldn't remember what episode it was. He mentioned that Severian coming out of the water in guile when he's saved by the undines is like uh, a kind of birth which uh craig i definitely agree and i'm gonna dig into that and some other things when we talk about the importance of severian's mother in in this book it would be something i you know i long thought was important at a level of the occluded plot but now uh craig and i think you're coming around to this i see it as an embedded in the structure of the narrative it's it's I think the way the novel is structured is organized in a way to emphasize Severian's mother's importance within the mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do too. Yep. And we've, we've talked about that a lot. Yeah. Is that, especially with the uh, Jaterna in Claw. Yeah, death. That's something that's come up more and more often. Yeah. And also on Patreon, Mark Cumming also really enjoyed the Joan Gordon, uh, Diane Lambert episode. Yeah. Uh, I got to agree about that one. It was, um, there's, there's a few episodes in here, Craig, that I feel like are worth it. If we never did anything else, if we just put mm-hmm. up these few episodes, I would be very proud of it uh, to begin with. He says it was outstanding, which it was. Uh, one of the greatest contributions this podcast brings to the Wolf community is in bringing different perspectives and voices to the conversation. I'm glad you tackled this subject head on right. using that approach. Yeah. Well, yeah. Very cool. Thank yeah, you. Thank Mark. He also says, I- I'm not nearly finished listening to the five episodes uh, covering eschatology and Genesis. And while it sounds as though there were some frustration at the time with how long it was taking to work through the play, listening the- to them back to back on my com- commute to and from 
work over the last few days. I'm thankful that you covered it in such depth. These discussions have given me a new appreciation for the purpose that the play serves within the context of the overall series, especially in absence of Earth of the New Sun. I especially appreciate Mark's systematic approach to the text, which I find illuminating. While it was a wee bit frustrating to witness James resisting all but the most literal translation of the play, I do admire his tenacity. Yeah, listen, man, I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up. This is, this is, I'm going to stay in my lane on this one. I'm going to find out exactly what is happening and we'll talk about what it means after that. But sometimes, you know, Greg, sometimes even I cannot find a literal purpose for every line that is spoken. Even you. Yes. No. So, um, uh, yeah, so that's, that's all we got for right now. That's good, but it's there was a lot of good stuff that we wanted to be sure to share and let people have a chance to hear if you're not. Well, some of those are emails, so you're not going to get them anywhere else. But yeah, if you're not on the the Reddit or if you're not on the subreddit or on Facebook. So yeah, lots of good stuff. And please always feel free to keep sending stuff in no matter where it is. If we're making good time through S.W.O.R.D. in the next year, that's great. You got something to say about, about Shadow, then please let us know. We're always happy to take more of it. Yeah. Um, And, you know, if for some reason you've sent us an an email or you put something up on Reddit, on the, on the subreddit or in Facebook or talk to us on, on Twitter or something like that. And we didn't actually bring it up here. Sorry about that. (laughs) We tried to be comprehensive. Um, Sometimes we just fall down on the job. Feel free. If you feel like you've been, uh, you know, neglected, send it off again can't hurt it's not like you have to send in a, a stamp or anything just send us a, an email or something like that absolutely and we'll take a look at it sure but uh yeah thanks everybody we've never had like a call-in show we've never had like a send us a a voice piece and we'll respond <laughs> to it or when we get a google number and people can leave us voicemails and we can be like an oh that would be so cool show. yeah <laughs> yeah we could put that in people say and i want to everyone should should have to do their uh their comments by by sending us leaving something on our our, our voicemail Beep, yep. little line and everyone should say long time listener first time caller even mantis <laughs> yeah, right. even mantis has to say <laughs> he has to continue to do like, i've been interviewed twice on the show no <laughs> you welcome first time caller Maybe he'll call in and uh, it like disguise his voice and pretend to be someone else. And probably, wah, wah, wah. Hey, I want something else I want to know. And that mantis is great. But yeah, so thanks. We'll be back with finishing up Claw in the next episode or two. And then we'll have our summary show and then on to Sword, which I've been listening to in the various audio versions lately to kind of catch up again. And there's a lot of stuff at the beginning of Sword that I forgot. And the pacing is different than I than I remembered, even though it's only been a couple of years since I read it, 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 something about it now feels different. It takes him longer to get out of Thrax than I remember. Always, always it's it. Yeah. The first few chapters are always, there's a lot more sort of just wandering than I remember. It seems. <laughs> and well, you know, and, and I'm reading it differently now with a different expectation mm-hmm. and oh, yeah. like that, you know, Syriaca's uh, conversation, it's just got a lot of meat in there for me. Yeah. And, you know, speaking, this is sort of a push ahead, but one thing that's fun about doing this is when things will hit you and you feel like, how could I ever have not noticed that before? Mm-hmm. But like the whole way that she narrates her story is totally a telling of Pandora's box. Yeah. And I don't know why that never clicked before. <laughs> and of course I go looking and I'm like, oh, well, people talked about that on Earthless too. I'm like, okay. And I just forgot and didn't pay attention. <laughs> but it hit me this time listening. I'm like, oh, obvious. I Too obvious maybe. And yeah. So it's kind of funny how that that happens. Things you feel like you should have caught a long time ago. Or, yeah, there's sometimes there's things I forgot that I once yep. knew, right? And, yep. and I went yep. off and, and and created theories about that and and neglected to think about other things. And that's um, you know, it, it just once I've said before, you know, it takes a lot of eyeballs to look at this elephant, and yes, it does, or yes, a lot of blind indeed. men to, to uh, describe <laughs> him. Okay. Okay, okay. Thanks, and uh, we'll see you with the rest of the of Claw Conciliator. And until you hear from us next, and I hope it won't be too long, may the Moira favor you. Take care.
and there's there was like an ancient 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 old like you know 50 pound super metal just circular fan and that's all they had and, oh ow and it was like but at the same time it'd be like oh the fan yeah <laughs> I, I was totally useless on on uh trips to texas yeah to visit family yeah I, with the heat i mean houston area mm-hmm. heat oh houston's miserable yeah the yeah. humidity i mean that, on, <laughs> i the, always yeah it was we lived in houston well amber lived there for five years i lived with her for two and a half years and excuse me that that's what killed me that was literally like after those a couple of years i was like that's it i'm done i can't <laughs> no seriously i was like i can't do this anymore i feel like i like by the time i walk to the car in the the half of the year i'm already sweating through my clothes so i wouldn't wear i would wear like a t-shirt and shorts to work or i'd wear like workout clothes on the way to work when i got to my room because i was teaching i'd like just lock the door and then i'd change into my teaching clothes and then when I drove home in the afternoon, I didn't even bother. I just knew by the time I got home, I was going to sweat through the undershirt, the regular <laughs> shirt, like my pants. I'd sweat like through my underwear and my pants and everything. And I'd take my shoes and socks off because like it was just miserable. And I was like, this sucks. This I hate this. I, this is like the worst <laughs> way to live. And I wouldn't go outside between yeah. like April and October. Like yeah, I just, that's the know. way I was when I was a kid. But and people used to joke; they'd be like, "You must be used to it." And I'm like, "No, you literally like run for shelter between air conditioned bubble and air conditioned bubble." I was like, "That's that's what it's like." You just, to some extent, yeah, that's true. It's true, I mean, and we, and I suppose it's worse. I mean, it's it's probably worse than that, that now because yeah. every there is so much air conditioning, yeah. but. But we'd like try to go to shake. They do Shakespeare in the park and they do Houston opera in the park in the summer and whatnot. We go, but we joke because we'd always fall asleep. Like it'd be so hot. You're out there and you just like, right. You just fall asleep. And her, one of her best friends had a wedding in July at like a state park somewhere. And it was just this miserable day. And everybody, like, I remember I, the only thing I remember about the ceremony was that, um, the groom was sitting there and he was sweating so much. Like it just literally kept dripping off the end of his nose and <laughs> like not a joke, not an exaggeration. He sweats so much. His tie changed color by the end of just the ceremony. And <laughs> it was, I was, yeah, I just kept thinking like, why, why do I live here? I was like, this is miserable. <laughs> just absolutely miserable. So, yeah. So no, I don't, I, I have no desire to go back now that my mom moved up here. I'm like, yeah, I hate to say it, but the rest of my family's dying off. <laughs> so I got no need to go back. So I'll I'll just that's fine. Yeah. Well, well, that's good luck getting you out here. To, well, to no, a- for that, for that, I would by all means do that. So, but I I will stay in those air conditioned bubbles. <laughs> so, all right. Well, uh, there's no ad on this one. And we don't, I don't see any point in, in getting, are we, are we, what are we not going to do an ad? Huh? <sighs> we could still, we could do one. Okay. It'd, it'd be our first one without an ad. Yeah. Be, yeah. So what do you have? Okay. Here's an idea. What's uh? well, we did one sometimes some of the earlier ones, like what, with Joan's first interview and uh, Nigel's interview, we didn't do ads for those. Oh, they didn't okay. exist yet. And I never, I never went back and never made one back. for those. Oh, gotcha. Okay. I'll say, well, how about this? If we come up with something while we're talking. Yeah. Tell me, give me, oh, okay, well, let's, let's talk and then we'll talk about okay. what an ad can be. And you, if you could pitch me some ideas that I can come up with and okay. I'll punch it out and we'll get it out. All right. Come, maybe we'll come up with, with something for, uh, for an outro too. And then cool. Well, shall we just, shall we yeah, let's go and get started. Okay. So, all right. That's all cut out. <laughs> so the, there's some editing Sweet. for you to do right there. Right. It could be. And, um, Hold on. I had a thought that escaped as soon as I was about to say something. Um, I'm going to have to cut all that too. Oh, no. Let me think how I can put this in the best way. Do you want to start this part over? Yeah. After, um, I'll know where to do it. I'll know where to do it. Hold on. I've lost my thought here. Hold on. Okay. Well, as far as stuff goes, let's see. Um, yep. I'll get the episode. I, the pieces are all done. I, I need to get everything spliced together and leveled and all okay. that kind of stuff. And then. Well, I can edit this one we, together and, and put it in. If you don't get it out, then okay. we can put this out at least. Okay. But now um, we'll, we'll get that. We'll get that. Okay. Done. And, all right. So let's talk about um, potential 
um, ads. All, I need a, just, okay. just a few um, ideas to, to run with. Let's see. What came up a lot was... Um, Let's see, stuff about the play, stuff about lots of people said that even though it was long, it was useful. We had that. We had people talk about, um, or we could just do something about letters or commentary or someone to keep up with, like an email answering service. Okay, or, okay. there's an idea, an evil little um yeah, some kind of uh, service that answers your correspondence. For oh you yeah, yeah. Like we could bring, yeah, do, I'll do something with um with a little um answering machine, something to do with an answering machine. I've been listening. Right, to, cool. I've been listening to um the Rockford file. I've been watching the Rockford files. So oh, cool. Okay. One after well, another, and I got to tell you, that series holds up. 